ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the Fresh Frozen Southerner podcast. My name is Jay. I hope everyone's having a good start to their week. Okay, guys, this episode is getting prepared for me to start talking about the rules for radicals, and I feel like I need to explain something. I've probably, listening back to the episodes I did talking about this, um, it kind of sounded like I was just doing this so I could rip Saul Linsky a new one, uh, that I could tear into the Rules for Radicals book. That's not really what I want to do. Now, I'm expecting not to agree with anything in that book, but I'm trying to go into this with a clear and open mind. Um, I don't want to have a bunch of preconceived notions. I just want to read the book and draw my conclusions after I know what's between the pages. And in order to get a good start on that, now Friday's episode, I'm going to start this little series I'm doing. Uh, It'll be on chapter one. I don't want to just do every episode until I get to the end of the book. I'll probably, I do two episodes a week. I'll probably do one episode on the book every other week, and and we'll get through it that way, because there's just all kinds of stuff that pops up in the news that aggravates me, or I'll think of some interesting thing from history I want to talk about. Uh, But I thought the best place to start on the book was to to learn a little bit about Saul Linsky himself. I've heard that name my whole life. The only thing I could have told you about about him, he was a community organizer, and he wrote this book, and I think he probably wrote a couple other books. But I thought, let's take a look at the man himself. Um, Like I say, his name gets invoked all the time. I know nothing about him. I didn't even know when he lived. So I really thought the best primer to get into this topic and to get into the book was to just find out who in the world Saul Linsky actually was. All right, now Saul Linsky was born in Chicago in 1909. Uh, His parents were Russian Jewish immigrants. Russia... It doesn't get talked a lot. Uh, Russia had a bit of a habit at the turn of the century of going on pogroms against the Jews. Uh, If you don't know what a pogrom is, it's basically when you decide, all right, we don't like these people, let's get rid of them. Uh, They sort of, you pick a group, it's kind of like, think of a little mini jihad. Uh, a regional jihad, but if you're Jewish and you're listening to this, I'm sure you have heard stories about pogroms your whole life. Uh, That seems to sort of the underlying reality of the 20th century Jew was dealing with pogroms, if not outright genocides. Uh, But his family immigrated to America from Russia, and like I say, it did not say this specifically, I'm sure they were fleeing from something. Most Jews that came to America were. His father worked as a tailor. Later, he was a deli owner. And it said, finally, at the end of his career, he was running a cleaning shop. Um, I'm not exactly sure what a cleaning shop is. Given Chicago, maybe you see cleaners in the movies. Maybe maybe he took care of bodies. I don't know. Uh, but it didn't go into any, any detail about what in the hell a cleaning shop is. But his father ran one later in life. Uh, Saul Linsky said that you know, through all those years where he was a tailor and a deli owner, he said the family always lived at the back of the shop. They never had their own apartment or their own home. His father would just set up living quarters in whatever storefront he was working out of, and that's where the family lived. In fact, uh, Saul was quoted one time as saying that his father graduated to owning his own sweatshop. Now, I'm kind of curious about that statement. I wonder if there was just some animosity between Saul and his father, and that's the way he looked at it. Or was his 
father just a really horrible boss to work for, and he actually ran sweatshops. Again, that's the kind of thing that doesn't get handed down through the generations. It's hard to find out little nuances like that, particularly when people are writing about somebody they sort of idolize. They sweep that kind of stuff under the rug. But that that statement kind of intrigued me, but I wasn't able to find any satisfaction on it. Now, Saul's parents were very devout Jews. Uh, They attended synagogue every week, and until about the age of 12, Saul would go with them. Around the age of 12, a little later into his teens, Saul began to drift away from the Jewish faith. He said that he did it because he was afraid his parents would force him to become a rabbi, which again, I find that very strange. If his parents had the power to force him to become a rabbi, and that was what they wanted to do, wouldn't they be able to do that whether or not he was at synagogue on Friday night? But at any rate, Saul Linsky always referred to himself as being Jewish, but he became more and more agnostic as his life went on. Saul attended college at the University of Chicago, and he studied sociology, and the heads of the sociology department were Ernest Burgess and Robert Park. Burgess and Park are big names in sociological circles, or they were in the 20s and 30s at any rate. They studied urban sociology. One of their big conclusions in their most widely known publication dealt with inner city and slums. And one of the things that they believed was it's the slum area itself and not the people living there that cause social issues. Uh, That's an insane statement, but we'll get into that a little bit more towards the end of the show. Saul Linsky actually had a brief foray into archaeology. He went on several archaeological trips. Uh, They ended when the stock market crashed in 1929. Saul Linsky said that all the people who had funded the trips were being scraped off the sidewalks of Wall Street. The folklore of people committing suicide on Black, uh, not Black Friday, Black Monday, that, again, I have heard that my entire life. You see it in movies. It's a TV trope. We all have heard about the traders on Wall Street jumping out of their office windows when the stock market crashed. I took a little side detour on this because just I didn't think that that was actually true, but I had never really dug into it. Um, I found a book that is published by J.K. Galbraith, and he did one of the preeminent studies of the Great Depression and the 1929 Wall Street crash, uh, and he published a book about it. But here's a quote from that book. In the United States, the suicide wave that followed the stock market crash is part of the legend of 1929. In truth, there were none. So that's just one of those little pieces of Americana that has crept into our collective consciousness. It did not happen. Apparently, nobody jumped out of the window when the stock market crashed. That's just something that grew up during the Great Depression, and it sort of latched on to everybody's recollection of the time, but it did not happen. But as Mark Twain once said, don't let the truth get in the way of a good story. And so now we all believe that the stock market crashed and it was just raining businessmen for the rest of that week. Saul Alinsky began his college career studying sociology, but he switched to criminology at some point. One of the reasons that he did this is he did not agree with Burgess and Park's beliefs on the fact that 
the area of the slums is what causes them to be slums. And, and again, we'll get into that a little bit later. Uh, but he switched over to criminology. Um, now, this is where I uncovered something really, really odd about Saul Alinsky's time in college. He was studying criminology, and I was reading three different sources and trying to piece together sort of a cohesive and fair biography of Saul Alinsky's life. They all just sort of glossed over this little two-year period of his life. Somehow or another, while he was studying criminology, Saul Alinsky got in with Al Capone's organization, and he would just attend dinners and meetings with these high-ranking members of Al Capone's mafia gang. And he said that Al Capone and his cronies owned the city, and they didn't feel the need to hide anything from a college kid. That strikes me as incredibly strange. And again, everybody just kind of glossed over it. Oh, yeah, he he sat with one of the most powerful criminals in the world. He hung around him for two years. That's not something that a criminal would do. You, know, I don't care how safe I feel from persecution. If I'm a crime lord, I'm not letting just random people that are studying to enter the law enforcement community when they graduate. I'm not letting that guy hang around and conducting business in front of him. That's... There is something off about those two years. If I had to guess, I would say that that is a very euphemistically, very euphemistic way of saying that Saul Alinsky was involved with Al Capone's criminal organization, not just getting to hang around and watch what happened. You know, when when something seems like it's not right, when it really, when you hear it and it just sounds wrong, Usually it's because it's wrong, and there's something going on there that they're not wanting to put down on paper. And again, the the three sources that I read really seemed to speak of him in glowing terms. Now, they were not gushing, but you could just kind of, I kind of got the sense that the people that were writing this liked Saul Linsky a lot, and they were trying to fluff up his career and his personal life uh, without going over the top. But really, I mean, just to say that he spent time with Al Capone's organization, they just let him sit in and watch what they were doing. No, I don't buy that for a second. I think that he was an associate of the organization. And unless I suddenly get the ability to go back in time and observe what he was doing while he was quote unquote observing, you're not going to convince me differently because that is a very bizarre situation for a criminology student to find himself in. And Occam's Razor says the simplest answer is usually the correct one. But once Saul Linsky graduated with his uh, criminology degree, he he did pursue that as a career for a brief time. Uh, he spent two years working at a juvenile corrections facility. Uh, again, he was only there for two years. He said it really turned him off to the criminology career path, which I can imagine I mean, just a juvenile correction hall in the 30s. Uh, I can just imagine what a nightmarishly depressing place that would be to work. But it was at this point in his life he began work as a community organizer. I'm not going to run down everything he did. Uh, the Woodlawns organization, he was active in Rochester. He was busy in a lot of Chicago slum areas. Uh, he was there for the Watts riots. The, you know, the man worked in uh, community organizing for the next 30 years of his life. Uh, it, he's got a very long list of the things he worked on, uh, organizations he worked with. That's not really what I was wanting to find out about him. 
you know, all that information's there. If you want to, you know, one of the things I was looking at is Wikipedia. It had a extensive section on his community organizing work. So that's there if you want to see it. I was really just wanting to find out a little more about who he was and where he came from. Uh, but once he actually, he was active in community organizing pretty much right up until the end of his death. I think he officially retired about three years before he passed away. He died in 1972 at his home in Carmel, California, of a heart attack. Now, I had intended this episode to just be a biography about Saul Alinsky so that we could all go into the book with a little bit of knowledge of who the man was and how he got his set of ethics and what he believed a person's role should be with the government and in their community. Now, as I was reading about his life and his beliefs and the things that sort of shaped his personal view of the world. Now, obviously, there are a lot of things that Saul Alinsky believed that I do not agree with. Uh, he was a big supporter of big government. He felt that the government should be involved in these slum areas and in really the lower class, the middle class neighborhoods. He thought that the government should have a much bigger hand in how those places were run and people's day-to-day lives, and I absolutely do not agree with that. He felt like a lot of the lower class and the poor people felt like they didn't have a place within the government. I personally feel like that you're not supposed to feel like you have a place in the government because the government is not supposed to have a big place in your life. The founders did not set this country up so that the government would be the overarching through line of your daily life. The way the founders wanted the government to run was that the federal government would have the least amount of power and the least amount of involvement in your daily life. Uh, The state government would have a little bit more power and a little bit more involvement because they're closer to your home. But the people that were supposed to have the, the most power legislatively over your life was your local government, the town you lived in, the county you lived in, because those are the people that are your neighbors. They know what the situation in your life is and the, the situation in your town is. And they're supposed to take care of the lion's share of any governmental dealings that you're going to have. And the person that has the most control over your life is supposed to be you. Government is supposed to be descending in power the further it gets away from you. We have completely abandoned that. The federal government is the be-all, end-all at this point. Uh, Your local government, I mean, they write silly little ordinances and can give you a ticket if you park in the wrong spot. And that's pretty much it. Everything else that they do is overridden by state laws, which is overridden by federal laws. We have completely flipped the way the Constitution was supposed to set up the government. The federal system, if you read into that, and I'm going to have to do a show on that apparently because now I'm kind of fired up about it, but the federal government system that our founders set up was, you know, without bloviating, it was brilliant. And it was brilliant in a lot of different ways. And we have decided, well, 30% of the country has decided that those were just a bunch of stupid old white men and they were all racist, and we shouldn't listen to anything they say. Well, they were human. They were not perfect, but they were brilliant. And it is a miracle that that many brilliant thinkers came together in the same place at the same time and birthed this country. But again, I'm not going to get into that now. We'll do a show on that. But the 
the federal system of government had some just truly genius innovations, and we have thrown them away to our own detriment. But anyway, Saul Alinsky would not have agreed with me on that. He believes that the government should have a bigger role in everybody's lives. Uh, and that's one of the things that I very strongly disagree with him. But I found myself agreeing with some of the things the man said. You know, during the 60s and into the 70s, you know, he was working in these very low-income slum neighborhoods. But he always pushed back against dividing these groups into races. And he felt that this was an individual problem, and it had nothing to do with the color of a person's skin. Uh, in fact, somebody was asking him how he felt about the call for black power. Um, his quote, and I did not write this down, so this is not an exact quote. The gist of what he told that individual was the community should have the power. And if that community is black, then that will be black community members that have the power. But it's not about skin color. It's about the community. Uh, that is about the most sensible thing I've heard anybody say on the left since I was 10 years old. Uh, he also believed that part of the problem in the slums was that there were no community ties. Uh, you know, People didn't know their neighbor. They didn't know the people across the street. It wasn't their home. That was just this crappy little box where I sleep at night and all my stuff's in. And he believed that if neighbors knew neighbors, if you know the community leaders knew the people that lived down the street, everybody would feel united. Everybody would start to have a sense of pride and a sense of place. I absolutely agree with that. I'm not the most outgoing person. I don't speak to my neighbors a lot, but I do know all my neighbors' names. Um, if we see each other out, I'll wave, say hello. And that's sort of going away. A lot of people, you know, they just, their house is where they go when they want to watch TV or they want to go to sleep, and that's pretty much the end of how they feel about it. And that does erode civic pride, that does erode your sense of community, and that would have an effect on a community. He was absolutely right about that. But one of the biggest things that, and this just really shocked me, um, I want you to listen to this statement, and I want you to tell me if this sounds like it came out of the mouth of someone that is lionized by the progressive left. Uh, he was speaking about people that have very dogmatic belief in a system, and this is what he had to say. I hate dogma. People who believe they owned the truth have been responsible for the most terrible things that have happened in our world. Whether they were the Communist purges, or the Spanish Inquisition, or the Salem witch hunts. I read that statement, and I just sat here and I thought, how is the man that said that considered a prophet to the progressive left? That is the antithesis of what the left believes. I mean, this is a group that is pulling people down on Twitter if they disagree with the status quo. They're shutting down YouTubers. If an actor speaks out against something like this, they're canceled. They're, you never see them again. Uh, TV shows are getting canceled. Ironically enough, if Saul Alinsky was alive today and said that exact same thing, he would be canceled. It just it proves what I've said a couple times now. People on the progressive left idolize Saul Alinsky. They have not read anything about him. And it kind of makes me think that you know, Saul Alinsky really wasn't very radicalized by today's standards. Now, in year 1950, a far-left radical 
compared to today would probably look extremely conservative and a little bit stodgy. But I kind of realized something. I, I have been looking at Saul Alinsky through the prism of today's radical leftists. And a Democrat in the 60s would hold some pretty logical and measured beliefs. And this is the era that he's coming from. And so, you know, I really wasn't looking forward to reading Rules for Radicals. Um, it's something I decided that I needed to do uh, just just for my own personal edification. Um, again, I, I like to know things. I don't like to base my opinions on, on no information. But I came away from just this little bit of a biography uh, with a much different outlook on Saul Alinsky. And, you know, just it's easy to turn somebody into a hero or into a monster when the only thing you know is the name. And I kind of feel like Saul Alinsky's reputation and some of his beliefs have been co-opted by the left. I don't think Saul Alinsky, just from what I've read, would be on board with the progressive agenda in this day and age. But reading through this guy's life and some of the things he believes, you know, kind of realizing it doesn't matter which side of the aisle you're on. Yeah, we're all just people, and we have more things in common than we have differences. And I'm kind of intrigued to read this book now. Um, I'm still not, I still expect to disagree with most of it, but it was a chore that I had set myself before I read up on Saul Alinsky. Now I'm kind of looking forward to it. All right, guys, like I said, Friday's episode is going to be on Chapter 1 of Rules for Radicals. I will give you a summation of the chapter, and then I'll go over some of the things I thought about it. Until then, I hope you enjoyed this show. Um, I know a lot of the information I was passing out there is kind of dry. I hope you were able to sit through it. If you did, I thank you, and I apologize. Uh, but if you enjoyed the show, please leave me a like and a subscription. and Or subscribe. My son got on me for saying subscription last episode. Uh, so please like, subscribe, and comment. And if you want to leave a comment, you can do so at Fresh Frozen Southerner Facebook page or at Fresh Frozen Southerner at gmail.com. All right, guys, enjoy the rest of your week. I will talk to you again on Friday and have a good one. Thank you very much.